Welcome back, Seaweed Brain listeners, to the first episode of a new era for Seaweed Brain Podcast, a podcast that used to ask the question, is Persebeth the greatest love story ever told? Then covered several books throughout the expanse of the Riordanverse, and now we are back to The Lightning Thief in television form to ask our old question, new questions, and generally fangirl and overanalyze about every aspect of this TV show. Stick around. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Assuming we have new listeners here today, we're going to introduce ourselves from the top. My name is Erica. I am the co-host of this podcast along with... Me, Carter. I am the other co-host of the podcast. Hi. And how long have we been doing this podcast for, Carter? As we have explained many times recently, we've been doing this podcast for three and a half years through basically the entire Rick Riordan oeuvre. It's true. We've given an elevator pitch many times in the past couple weeks. We started in 2020 because... We'd revisited the books. Erica was like, I think that this would be a good project for us to do because the books are surprisingly good. The companionship between Percy and Annabeth is interesting, never before seen. And also we were like, we should have a reason to have conversations with people yeah. in real life on a regular basis because this would have been in like May of 2020. So as two extreme <laughs> media nerds and also longtime lifelong Percy Jackson fans, this is our contribution to the fandom. Yeah. We started the show when Rick and Becky first announced that this Disney Plus adaptation was early, early stages of being in the works. And <laughs> now we're here, which is funny because that whole like log line of like three and a half years, we have been saying that a lot, but also other people have been using that number a lot because that is exactly how long it's been since Rick and Becky's since first they announcement. Announced the project. So even though we are not involved in the show, it feels like we're all involved in something together. <laughs> yes, it feels like we have all waited together. We have all birthed this thing together, although with obviously very different amounts of uh, creative input and labor <laughs> and involvement. But in many ways, yes. we've been there. We have not had any creative input on the show yet. Y yet. <laughs> and yet. We have one more thing to do before we dive into analysis today, which is thank our patrons. I so apologize if I mispronounce your first name. Isaac. Cameron, Kirsten, Matthew, Carolyn, Gwen, and our sustaining member, Fruity Judy. Thank you, everybody, um, for being patrons of the show. Let's dive in. All right. Many people have seen this first section before. It was at Comic-Con. It has been, like, teased a lot. It was at the 92nd Street Y last week. The, the show opens with the look, I didn't want to be a half-load speech. To begin with, we are getting the exact same text out of the books, but unlike the books, this is an audio visual medium. We have a visual to go along with this. So as Perky, as as did you say Percy Perky? Parker, oh my god, are you a Perkabeth truther now, Carter? Am I a Perkabeth person? Oh wow, that was humiliating. <laughs> as Parker is delivering this monologue, we have a storm. We have deep, dark blues. We have the sounds of the storm. We have a camera that is slowly pushing in from a grainy out of focus scene into walker's rain drenched face and hair i feel like this is totally very different from the, like in the book we are to imagine that this whole novel is going to be almost epistolary that it's going to be an address to you the reader who is kind of conspiratorially in on something with percy who is mm -hmm. sharing this you know frightening but delightful secret with you in this yeah. situation it is kind of not that we are getting drama we are getting yes. interiority we are getting a striking visual image that we're going to see recur as a motif throughout yes. the series and this is something that's been talked about a lot during the press tour for the show which is probably the main difference between these two adaptations is that you don't have a first person narrator in a tv show unless you have continuous voiceover throughout the entire show which i'm pretty sure we're not going to get voiceover back until maybe the very end of season 
five. <laughs> what? You don't think we're going to end season one with some voice? Well, That's what I'm saying. we might like, not. I don't think season one is going to end with voiceover, but I do think we might get voiceover at the start of every season and then at the end of season five. At the start of every season, I can... Wow, wow, wow. I see the yeah. vision. That makes sense to me. Yeah. What goes along with the lack of narration is that in the books, they're so funny because you get everything from Percy's perspective. And we are not in Percy's perspective in the show, which means we also get to see scenes that aren't necessarily in the book where Percy might not have been um, chronologically mm-hmm. in the story. But also, I think my central question in going into these episodes was how funny will they be if we don't get to hear Percy commenting on everything? And I think there are some very interesting switches that happen to certain characters in this first episode that help mm-hmm. us to establish some of the like quirky offbeat comedy that we can't get from hearing Percy's internal monologue. Yes, I think that's right. We do get a little bit of Percy's internal monologue that sort of follows along the same speech. If you're remembering in the books, there are these like two or three paragraphs right at the beginning that are the direct address. And then there's a few line breaks. And then we have more of Percy basically regaling you with his life story up until age 12. My name is Percy Jackson. I'm 12 years old. The troubled kid monologue, if you will, where he explains his experiences getting kicked out of different schools because he has had to like fight monsters or seen strange beasts or what have you, right? Mm-hmm. We, we are getting a sort of compressed different version of that here. Still, we have this voiceover narration from Percy. We get young Percy, the actor, which was like, a, to me, this is an interesting choice. So like very quickly after that establishing shot, have like a different actor play Percy, but it's appropriate. These shots to me were very interesting. The like visual language of them is kind of different from a lot of the rest of the show and reminded me of the Mysterious Benedict Society, which of course, which of course makes sense. Same director. Same director. <laughs> we love you, James. Yes. There's this like surrealist quality to them. The color grading is super weird. And the uh-huh. shots are not to already be like, what a shot. But like, straight <laughs> off the bat, we have this. Not even two of- minutes into the first episode of this TV show. What a shot. We, we have like a scene where a teacher or a headmaster or principal or something is trying to chase Percy up to the roof. Mm-hmm. And we get these shots of like this teacher running up this like winding staircase and there's a camera looking down from the top of the staircase slowly spinning as oh, what a this shot. teacher's winding his way up. We have a shot right behind the professor, shaky cam of him like taking those last steps up to like push open the like rooftop door. And if you're a patron, you know how we feel about shaky cam. Shaky cam <laughs> is cinema. <laughs> Nikki Cam is important for this moment. We're already seeing that we're making creative choices to establish the sort of strange off-kilterness of this world, that things are not normal, that we're not going to try to frame this in a way that is necessarily conventional. There is a strangeness, there is an unsettledness that we're getting as Percy is voicing over all of this. And there's also like a grayness, both in the, again, visual language, the colors, but also the way that Percy is framing this is a little bit different from the books. The books are Percy saying like, my life is hard. I am like a tough kid who has overcome these bizarre obstacles. But then in this version, we have Percy genuinely being confused and uncertain. After these experiences, he's referred to a like guidance counselor. And we see him working yes. through these things with a counselor who just kind of doesn't believe him. And Percy isn't really connecting to the process, but is getting the sense that he is not normal. Yes. And this is so brilliant because we don't get in this first episode any mention of explicitly ADHD or dyslexia that is really important to Percy's character in the book. But we do see this kid getting sent to the guidance counselor and being told we need to work through how you see the world and how you see the world is different from how other people see the world. And this is something that I think is so beautiful just for anybody who has any kind of experience of neurodivergence like seeing Percy get sent to that guidance counselor or seeing him daydreaming or doodling in his notebook and be treated differently because he experiences things differently it's starting to lay the groundwork for what will get expanded upon later yeah I was almost reminded most of Alice in Wonderland as a cultural touch point he literally says the phrase impossible things several times which yes I mean, I haven't read Lewis Carroll. I know Lewis Carroll's like problematic and that we uh, were uh, talking about Alice in Wonderland lore is fraught. But sure. the Disney film adaptation, which is also uh, a bit oh, fraught God. to discuss now. Oh, uh, <laughs> many things are fraught. Everything Mia was an icon in that film. The performances she delivered in that film. That's one of the movies I've seen the most in my life. As far as just like sheer number of times I've watched a movie, that is definitely up there in the top 10 most viewed. Just specific like facial expression in that movie where she's a little like vexed, but also like confident and being like, oh, why why doesn't anyone else understand what I'm trying to say right now? Like that yes. that energy. And specifically, I think in the movie, they use that phrase impossible things. Yes. Many times, right? Like yes. she's supposed to envision six... Impossible things before breakfast. Am I right? Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Or seven. Seven impossible things before breakfast. And the last one is slaying the Jabberwocky. Uh, yeah, anyway. <laughs> like, that's, I think that's the like, most strong parallel to what we're getting here of Percy feeling a disconnect between his idea of the world and other people's ideas of the world yes. and being unsure, like on a precipice of how to deal with that discontinuity, much like Alice's in specifically yes. this like teenage Tim Burton adaptation. It's also the same as Mysterious Benedict Society, gathering this group of kids who sees everything differently. It's obvious. I mean, it's obviously yeah. a trope of like children's literature. But um, a lot of children's literature, I think a lot of children's literature is less interested in understanding the decision of like what you do with that difference. And a lot of it, it's just someone quickly, quickly, quickly sweeps in and says, it's because you're special. It's because you're better than the other kids. And everyone just rolls with that immediately. Percy, right. on the other hand, is not going to have that same journey. He in this yes. is going to not roll with that explanation straight off the bat which yes. is great that's part of the representation that this character brings to the canon of children's literature is that we see mm-hmm. him going through the world having this like semi-gaslighty experience and what that's like for him yes out of this gray surrealist montage exciting divergence from the books here grover playing mythomagic with Percy. This scene is magical. Like, literally, Grover's introduction is slapping a card down on the table. We pan up and we see Grover. Big smile. The colors are all different. Like, the world gets color when Grover arrives. Catching fire. Aspect ratio found dead in a ditch. (laughs) The color grading when Grover shows up. Wow. (laughs) This scene is so tender because, again, we're still getting Percy's narration over this. The voiceover is still there. We're explaining why Grover is friends with Percy. And in this scene, it is the combination of the narration which we get in the books and the images, which are new. We're seeing Percy and Grover sit together by themselves in the cafeteria as all the other kids whack Grover with backpacks, generally treat the two of them disrespectfully. Yes. And I think a lot of people have had this difficulty understanding how to visualize Percy as being someone who is was... lame, is a loser. Yes. People did not understand the Percy loser thing. It's incontrovertible. You can't watch this and not understand how he's a loser, even if you might have been confused reading the books. Which I think the books also do clearly convey this. But the cafeteria, there's this ending shot of the two of them that's like panning back out. Where like, they're symmetrically framed, both in profile, surrounded by these other kids who like, don't like them. and But they're having a great time. But also like, you can really understand why no one else would talk to them. Yeah. Genius. It so, so <laughs> quickly establishes the bond between Percy and Grover. And like you said, Carter, that everything changes. The world gets brighter when Grover becomes Percy's friend, which is important to establish the conflict that's going to come later in the episode. We've said many nice things about Aryan already, even though we have not officially covered <laughs> anything yet. He was so impactful immediately. Every time we've seen this scene like five or six times now, guys, if not we more. Love Aryan. We are like we love residents. <laughs> Of Aryan's (laughs) fan club. Every time we see that first scene, it is everything. We, like, the world opens up as the color grading opens up as well for us because of how much he is giving. As much as I would like to claim that we are, like, presidents of Aryan Grover Truther Club, the feedback I have seen from people attending screenings over the past week has been exactly this. The people love Aryan. Yes. Aryan is the people's prince. (laughs) Truly. (laughs) He is undeniable eating. Well, that brings us to... The iconic opening scene, the, the lock. lock, if you will, it's the mat. We have our iconic New York established shots. We have the bridge. We have the swelling of the score. The strings come in, and then all that drops out to get the 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 sounds of the city, the steps up to the museum, the one dollar water that is fake because, of course, the water in front of the mat now costs seven dollars. As we, we found out this there. week. <laughs> It is funny, though, because at one point I was standing like sort of just off to stage right of the Met on the sidewalk as you see this shot in the show when I, we were there. And I was looking up at the Met and I was like, wow, it does look exactly identical to what they created in the volume, except for the fact that the water is $7. <laughs> yeah, no, the, the stand looks the same. Yes. Selling the water. Anyway, we've established things. We're in there. We're, no, I can't keep being like, what a shot. Because I'm somebody who thinks, what a shot. But also, like, I could not, I don't have good enough references to tell you what it is exactly that we're doing here. I want to say that this is like a Spike Lee reference, maybe, where we have a bunch of these still, still shots of individual Greek statues in the mat. Yeah, the establishing shots. The establishing mm-hmm. shots that are completely still. Like, Spike Lee likes to do this, I believe, with, like, um, like portraiture, right? Like, he'll he'll, like, have, like, a montage of just, like, images of famous black political figures and or revolutionaries while someone is giving a monologue. And here as well, like we get Kyren slash Mr. Brenner 
talking about the relevance of Greco-Roman antiquity and mythology mm-hmm. for the way that we identify and you know, like craft our perspectives and live our lives as we're getting those shots. And then we eventually get to Perseus, where we finally have the camera move down the arm and oh down to Percy gosh. looking up at it. We said this in the trailer too. We were like, how is this the first time? This wasn't in the movie, right? Like, why is this the first time we are getting specifically a description, an image, a something that is combining this statue of Perseus that is very famous at the Met, like one yes. of the nicest statues that they have in the great statuary hall with Percy Jackson, the character. It's because lovely. this is what the entire show is about. Mm-hmm. Percy is not going to be a hero like the heroes in the stories. He is going to be his own kind of hero. He is going to make his own fate, make his own decisions. Hercules found dead in a ditch. Theseus, Hercules Perseus, found dead in a all ditch. of them found dead in a ditch. He is looking up at not only the symbol of antiquity, but this symbol... We will get into this more in four years when the Titan's curse comes out. The symbol of like, <laughs> masculinity and heroism and power. Yes. And he's just this little teeny tiny guy. Masculine and domineering. Exactly. And he's small and he's, he's confused. He's looking up at the statue and he hasn't made a decision yet about this. I think that, yes. is, that is what's so important about this is that this is a person who is dealing with ambiguity and you get that so clearly in these establishing shots yes. that like he that these he's like he's swimming in these big ideas but hasn't formed a final opinion about them yet the expression on Which, big percy's face as he's looking up at the statue of perseus is so identical to the expression on young percy's face as he's looking out the window or looking at the pegasus and not really understanding yes. what he's seeing like this is wondrous but this is other and this is something that i need to figure out still yes which leads us into this flashback totally new to Percy and Sally oh, being God. at the Met. This also, when we talk about the, the work that oh Lighting is doing in here, this is the Greta Gerwig school of, let me tell oh. you, what is the past by having three gigantic, warm, Golden yellow floodlights. lights completely covering the space. Oh my God. James Bowman said, you're right. The past was bright and golden. Should, should we read this dialogue? Please. Are we allowed oh to? My I God. think it's fine. It's short. Is that why you named me after him? Because he was a hero? What makes you think he was a hero? Because he kills monsters. And what makes you think she was a monster? Not everyone who looks like a hero is a hero. And not everyone who looks like a monster is a monster. I was shocked. I was gagged. I was deceased. I was pushed into a fountain. I was soaking wet. This line (laughs) was wild. It's like we wrote this. You know what I mean? That is how I have felt watching the TV shows thus far. It is mm-hmm. like Carter and I got on a Google Doc and wrote this episode and said, what, what are like, the most important themes of the series? needs to be front-loaded and we need it to come from a source of authority, which is literally what the executive producer said about this scene. John Steinberg has been making me cry over and over again lately. But if you listen to our last episode, you heard his quote where he said how important it was to him to include this. Um, If you haven't listened to our last episode, please go. There are so many cool interviews with all of the creatives, including Rick and Becky in there. Yes. And again, when we're thinking about the ambiguity, when we're thinking about what the Statue of Perseus represents, this is... It's not just about Sally having these ideas. It's about answering the implicit question, like, like, how does Sally feel about the heroes? Like, what does it mean that Percy is named after Perseus, this Greek hero? Is that an implicit endorsement of that hero's journey through life? Because in the books, all they say is that Perseus is the one hero with a happy ending, and that's special. And we do mention that. But Sally also here is giving you, slow your roll. Like, you're named after this person because he endured things that were terrible and got lucky and was compassionate and maintained his relationships. But also, that doesn't mean that you should take this moment that you're seeing depicted in front of you as the crux of his identity and his role in our culture as what he's about and what you are supposed to be about. You know, it, it is directly intervening into that common idea about how Percy is supposed to fit into the canon. Yes. Many teenage boys kill monsters. Many teenage boys have swords and deal with magic and find relationships and things that are bigger than themselves. But not every young male hero solves a conflict without a sword. Yes. Not every teenage boy asks, what is the point of me using this sword right now in a way that goes beyond the immediate consequences for my life personally? And that's important. Anyway, this scene is gorgeous. It is fully (laughs) inserted and beautiful. And then we... Shall we uh, recite together? Line of all lines. (laughs) The line of all line that every time I've seen it, no matter how many times I've seen the scene, has made me tear up 
to full sob somewhere on that spectrum. Um, <laughs> Percy looking at Sally. All together now, recite it. Recite it at home, in your car, if you're cleaning, you're doing laundry right now. Say it with us, everybody. Hold, Hold fast, Perseus. Perseus. Brave, Brave the storm, storm that was meant to break us, for we are unbreakable as long as we have each other. <laughs> that you know what that's giving that's giving percy jackson tattoo that's giving hold fast yeah it's an important reframing perseus is a story about resilience and about luck and about the gods doing terrible things to people and not a story about killing a monster in a tradition of people who kill monsters because you're supposed to or because a god said to yeah i think now is a good place to take a quick ad break coming out of the golden past and then we will be right back Okay, we're back. It's Mrs. Dodds, and it's Nancy, and it's Percy getting bullied. Nancy has this line that says, like, Percy's different. or yes. spe- No, Percy's special, she Percy's says. Percy's special. I think it's just very useful to underscore what's going on. Also, Megan Mullally has always been a queen, will always be a queen. She eats hard. The range that this woman has to do this, to do Dick's the Musical, to do Karen from Will and Grace... To do Tammy too? Yes. Who else could say that? I was curious about what her portrayal of Electo would be and if it would be um, sort of like ironic. Yeah, or campy. No, she is dropped in right now. She is scary. She's giving you the tiniest hint of a smirk, excellent posture, a slow walk. It's delicious. It's delicious. We'll be back for more of her later. I, I think it's also worth noting that Percy is not quippy at this point. He like no, tries to be quippy and you can see the, the yet. ideas of impertinence, but he barely talks this whole time to anyone. He doesn't give a zinger. He doesn't actually defend himself. Speaking about Percy being a loser, like I think even when you're reading the book, even knowing Percy's a loser, you're still picturing someone in your head. You're still picturing someone cool. And obviously we know where this character goes to. But seeing mm-hmm. like Walker Scobell be teeny tiny right here and not have a quippy <laughs> zinger and this girl bully him for being quote unquote special. I was like, yeah. I, you understand. I really felt, I felt lightly pulled back to my childhood here like like honestly like a little bit i was like oh boy i know what that feels like to be staring off into the distance or acting a little weird and for the other kids to pick up on the fact that you're a little weird and you don't have anything smart or cool to say about it yet Mm -hmm. (laughs) because you're 12 yes you're 12 and most of that development is still interior at that point like you're not you're not fully formed it's okay because i had a carter grover it's okay it is true that i was the one person who probably for the entire time we were in sixth grade in hawaii Jeans only. I could have been a satyr. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you have like the curly, fluffy hair that you could have hit. I your really horns had in. the same hair as Ari. Okay, Percy, we're, we're debriefing outside. Just real quick, we need a moment for the fact that they imme- like they pull out the sandwiches. Amazing shot. Pans up from the paper bags from the floor and open them up wordlessly. Or exchanging like the meat for the cheese so that Grover can have a vegetarian sandwich. I just thought that this was so delightful and like the way that you establish things quickly you get around the lack of the the internal monologue you literally in the same mm. shot that we see percy wearing vans and grover wearing converse mm. they switch the meat and the cheese and that is how you establish character relationship dynamics in under one second in one shot with no dialogue that's filmmaking it's everything okay we're getting a lot in quick succession here it's a dense show they, they are economical with their shots and with their dialogue. Grover's yes. response immediately is like, well, there is somebody you could talk to about this, which is such a fascinating layered answer in this context, because in general in life, yes, there is someone you could talk to. That's a good thing to say. But in this particular context, we are starting to wonder, okay, so how does Grover fit into this journey that Percy's going on of being like, I'm different. I don't know if I'm in touch with reality. It seems like they're trying to thread together the dyslexia with Percy being like, I'm seeing things that no one else knows about. My, my mm-hmm. perceptions are not in line with what other people seem to think of is reality. And then <laughs> Grover delivers an iconic line. Um, if there's one thing I know about bullies, it is that you should never, ever stand up to them, which is a new line and brilliant. So funny. It's so funny. (laughs) It captures all the characterization you need, which is both that Grover probably genuinely believes this on some level, but also this is his job. Professionally, he needs to tell Percy, like, I know you could, like, ruin Nancy's life, probably, because I have information about you that you don't even know, but, like, it's in all of our best interests. He's lying! He's lying. But also genuinely looking out for his best interests and also genuinely a coward. A bit. Yes. (laughs) A little bit. A little bit. 
this, I Carter wrote in our notes, Percy force pushes Nancy into the fountain, which I think is, is so not how you would describe this. Well, now, okay, I have a theory because now having watched this scene and also seen some of the later stuff, which we won't spoil, there's no actual water power visual yet that we get in this first episode that comes later where you can expect it comes. Mm-hmm. The Percy going to push Nancy, I think it's less that there's like an invisible force push. And I think it's more that as he goes to push her, the water responds and the water pulls her back. Do you know what I mean? I think, I think that's there's right. a slight difference, but I think that it's important that like he doesn't like force push her and have like telekinetic powers. It's that as yeah, he yeah. goes, <laughs> that what we know from the books, that tug in his gut sensation pulls Nancy back into the water. Like the water is pulling her. He is not force pushing her. I think that's right. We get Dodds for real. There are these delightful like metallic ringing and like scraping noises over the strings. And, like, he pulls out Riptide, the ballpoint pen, which Kyron just gave him in the museum, of course. And it is, like, vibrating. It's, like, rattling back and forth really intensely and presumably making some of the metallic noises in the scoring. It's a little ambiguous mm-hmm. at this point. And Megan Mullally, Mrs. Dodds, is giving us this voiceover. And she is Strut. just strolling. cover girl. Strutting. Perfectly relaxed. Amazing posture. Head up and back. Slight, Regal. slight smirk. Regal. With the chest. Exactly. Leading with chest. As slowly. As she starts to slowly transform. The sweep of her coat into oh. the wing. Excellent. And the framing of these shots also. She's surrounded by the children who like have no idea what's going on. They're not looking at her. She's like tall compared to all of them. And just like staring directly down the camera as no as everyone else is looking somewhere else. And she's speaking to him telepathically. Which is yes. not something I think is set up in the very start of The Lightning Thief, right? I don't believe it is. In the in the Lightning Thief, she like lures him into a separate chamber and they're just talking. Yes. And yes. it escalates. This is fun. She is just walking, 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 gets closer. She flies up and lands on him when the wings As are fully her formed. Leather coat transitions into the CGI. This is a mm-hmm, beautiful mm-hmm. moment of total cohesion between the creative team that people asked Tish Monahan, the costume designer, to speak about during press about how did you set up like this transition between like her her leather trench coat into the full design of the fully VFX Electo, like going from Mrs. Dawes to Electo. And it starts with the VFX design. And then the costume is like, okay, how can we create something that could realistically slowly transform from the color scheme into the next one? And it is visually Mm -hmm. seamless. Oh my gosh. Yeah, it's great. We get the first dusting. We get the first use of Riptide, which is gorge. It's like shiny and almost difficult to like fully pin down or like it it doesn't just look like a sword, you know, like it looks magical. Which is nice and important. And the sound that it makes as it like expands yes. is so cool. It's like a metal stretching, almost like it's piece after piece after piece settles into place. And of course, the dusting looks like exactly what? <laughs> Voldemort. Oh, that's what you thought? I was thinking, Mr. Stark, I don't feel so well. I don't feel so good. <laughs> All of us should say the VFX has been like for a TV show in particular. Mm-hmm. It, it's not giving TV show budget. It's giving more. I've been living. I also have to say, I like the choice to not have a full-blown fight scene right here. Because I would say in the book, this yes. is the first big action sequence. And the choice to hold off on that until the Minotaur fight, yes. I think is really smart. Well, it's like... Almost a mistake. It's a mistake. And you're like, did I just kill somebody? Like, what happened? I don't know, like, what the power of this sword is. And then it also, like, keeps the Mm -hmm. tension building until later. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I agree. It's also probably Um, much less technically complicated (laughs) than an entire set piece right here. So all this is happening while, like, Percy is on his back, mind you. And, like, Dodds is on top of him, like, with the talons um, digging into the school uniform. And so Percy's, like, you know, like, on, lying down back on the floor he, and he like basically blacks out it like fades to white and then when it comes back in he's surrounded by kids looking down and there's like a shot up from the ground of all these kids looking over and we get the classic gaslight and especially we get Aryan eating down making eye eating. contact with Brunner and oh like my God. so clearly failing looking like he has a serious gastrointestinal illness as 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 he like <laughs> nods along, his gird is acting uh, up as he lies to Percy, and we fade to black because Disney Plus now has commercials. As Carter you, reminded the me, cheapest year. <laughs> I was like, "Why are there commercial breaks?" And Carter was like, "Because Disney Plus has commercials." And that takes okay, us into Act, act two. two, culmination. Oh my God, y'all, y'all, Rick. come on! This is the, the Rick, Rick cameo. cameo. <laughs> the amount of people 
who are like super fans who texted me like, oh my God, I didn't notice Rick until my like third rewatch. I was like, come on, y'all. You what? have not been spending enough time watching Rick sit in chairs at book tours he this sits year. in such a way. The posture, <laughs> the like light, he, like the neck is like a little bit angled, you know, and the glasses are sitting in such a particular way. And he's like, ah, he looks like yeah. Rick. He looks exactly the same. He He is in the scene playing like nameless school administrator, disciplinarian, something like maybe he's the vice principal. Yeah. Something I like, like that. that. I like that. In, in the scene in like a like cold, dark, paneled boardroom in a school where Percy and Grover are getting interrogated. This first shot is like amazing. <laughs> it is between, it's symmetrically right between Percy and Grover from behind looking at these three people. So like headmaster in the middle, Karen on one end, Rick on the other end. It's like and you're in the perspective both of, them. of Percy and Grover looking at these people. And yes. It's so important. You're in their perspective, but you still like can see the two of them like and how they're positioned. So you can set up where everyone is relative to each other. And they're so backlit. Like I think that's an important part of the effect is that you can basically not even see the headmaster's face um, because you're like staring into the light as he's like yelling at them yes which is how it would feel if you were getting yelled at <laughs> which is how it would feel if you were getting yelled at these shots are so good we turn around and we see the two of them grover's head is slowly like 90 degree angle you can't see any of his face he looks he is distra- having gastrointestinal gastrointestinal problems <laughs> it's giving fodmap but uh, <laughs> oh, <laughs> um, they say like do you have anything to say for yourself besides you didn't touch her? All Percy can say is, I didn't touch her. He's confused. He genuinely is like, it's just true. I don't know what else to say. It's yeah. heartbreaking. And, and Percy and doesn't get, lie. It's true. Percy does not lie. He does not lie. And Grover, the shots of this, oh my God. They have these two angles that they exchange between where it's like the nearer boy out of focus and the more distant boy in focus. And so they, like, do the establishing shot where, like, Walker's, like, out of focus. Aryan is, like, in focus, slowly, like, turning over, like, gigantic eyes, like, making eye contact with Walker, looking away, looking back up. Oh before my God. doing the, like, he isn't being truthful about what happened at the fountain. This line delivery is oh amazing. The way I... that he kind of has to wind up for it, but then he, like, speeds through confident, but, like, like nervous, but, like, decided and rehearsed. And the windup had me so everything. good. I was like, is he not going to lie? Is he going to support Percy? Is he not going to lie? Because I was, the acting had me so hooked. I was Especially like, he can't do it. This scene isn't in the books. Like, you might remember that, like, Grover doesn't rat. So this whole idea that Grover is the one who gets Percy kicked out of school is new. And the other one, in the book, Grover's just gaslighting him. But in this one, he's gaslighting him to authorities. And so I like when we the first time we were watching, we genuinely were like, we, we didn't know what's gonna happen. <laughs> this yeah. is this is full of tension, and Arian is milking it. He looks so ill. Eyes look <laughs> gigantic. Yeah. <laughs> and then we get Percy waiting outside on a bench. In, as you noted in our notes, Carter, the bright red jacket, which is a book detail that I am always forgetting about. Yes, book detail, important for plot reasons and visually striking. Like, it's such a cute shot of this, like, tiny child sitting on this too big bench by himself with a, like, bag. And also because, like, red is generally not in, like, the color scheme of his wardrobe. It's like a, I, I feel like an especially memorable image. It looks like Paddington, almost. It's like a brief scene. Kyron walks out, gives him this, like, weird mix of hopeful, your special dialogue with also, like, Percy... I know that you think that you didn't do anything wrong. Like, he's still committing to the gaslight, but he's also trying to be like, what did this kid see exactly? But also is trying to be like, I'm creating a special relationship with this child who I'm lying to. The nuances are so, so interesting and rich. But also, I think, faithfully communicating pretty, like, this relationship is pretty close to what we saw in the books as well, I would say. And this shot, we need to we need to move faster. We can't talk about every single shot just because it's good. Percy's, like, leaving in this gigantic beat-up pickup truck out the, like, manicured symmetrical, beautiful gates of Yancey Academy with its, like, white, um, freshly painted, tall, expensive house-looking facades behind Mm -hmm. them. It's a good shot. It makes a lot of sense. And then we're back in New York. We're back in New York. We meet Gabe. Gabe is established through an argument through the wall with a plumber who is telling him, maybe you need to eat more fruit. Because, what? Because Gabe poops weird. (laughs) (laughs) That's the first thing we know about him, that he's rude to plumbers, and that gastrointestinal distress <laughs> gastrointestinal distress is the theme of this episode it is the theme of this episode now um percy has a conversation now, with eddie who we can assume is probably the building manager very new york situation to, for percy to have like such a close relationship with his building manager who's so nice eddie shout out to you this is where i felt 
what I mentioned earlier at the beginning, that we are able to establish some of the comedy of this show. Because mm-hmm. so far, everything yes. has been quite dramatic besides an Aryan line here and there. We are able to establish yes. some of the comedy by making the adults a bit quirkier and a little bit less scary. Yes. That for me in the book, Gabe is terrifying, unforgivable. I want to strangle him with my bare hands. Bad. And yes. here, Gabe is like, ah, he's a bad guy. Like, oh, he's yeah. he's just sitting on the sofa and he's funny. Yes. He is funny. Which allows us some comedic relief and also allows us to not have too many antagonists. Um, because yes. I think if every single adult is treating him so poorly, you're like, wait, who is the villain of the series? And why is literally every single person against him? Um, <laughs> and how do we identify like who the actual villain is? And he gives Percy a chance to be funny, too. Because like Percy yes. can be mean to Gabe, and it's not weird because Gabe is like genuinely a threat to his family. And it's also not weird because Gabe is like, defenseless or something like Gabe is just like kind of a gross rude kind of strange jerk yeah and it's very appropriate for Percy and Gabe to sort of be like trading barbs and being like we're two people who don't like each other and like we as the audience like Percy and we don't like Gabe but we don't like I don't like at this point I'm like it's gonna be totally weird if and when we murder Gabe at the end of this book. Yes. Because yes. so far, Gabe That's is... the question we have. Are we actually going to murder Gabe? We don't know yet. Because at this point, Gabe is giving, like, probably we should divorce him because he's, like, not pleasant yeah. and not fun to be around and, like, not yeah. a good life partner. But, like... But he's not giving, like, physically abusive. Yes. Which yes. is a key detail Obviously, in the book. Obviously, how would we When know, Percy but... is, like, realizing at the end, like, Gabe hits my mother, like, it's it's over. Like, I'm not... And that could still happen. That could still happen. It could still happen. That's true. People who are rude, gross losers can also be abusive. Mm-hmm. There might even be positive correlation there. But, you know, like, just because someone is a rude, gross loser and maybe also poops weirdly and badly doesn't necessarily mean that we are trying to wish death upon them. We'll, we'll stay tuned and follow how that saga um, evolves. Yes. This is the first bit of Persass. Yeah. <laughs> Your, Your roof? roof? My, My mom, mom is, is the, the only, only one employed, employed here. <laughs> Literally, yes. it was giving Persassi. It was giving. By the way, shoulders are offset from the hip. I have finally seen the image that Jillian referenced a few episodes ago of the Persassi, but it has curly blonde hair, and I <laughs> cried laughing when I saw that. Okay. okay, it's time for the. It's time for Sally. You guys, I still can't believe this is real. When we were watching this episode together. I, I was like, had my headphones in. And you know how there's that little uh-huh. button on your wired headphones where sometimes if you accidentally like maybe hit it. You restart Spotify. Yeah, you accidentally start Spotify. I was like, oh no, I accidentally started Spotify because Logical by Olivia Rodrigo is playing. And I stopped it. And then it stopped the episode. And I was like, what? What? <laughs> I immediately, we were like on live stream together. I was like, is that, is that is, is that, wait. We were like, is this diegetic? And it is. Listener, it is diegetic. Sally Jackson. Sally Jackson. The character put on Olivia Rodrigo from a speaker to go out on a balcony in the rain in New York on a fire escape (laughs) and think about her life and her emotions and how she came to be at the place where she is in the world. When I made that joke about relating more to Sally Jackson this time, I did not mean to manifest this. (laughs) This is a whole new level. My queen Sally also goes to sit in the rain and listen to Olivia Rodrigo. And like, let's be clear. For those of you who are not, for some reason, people who know the track listing of guts, top to bottom, this is... (laughs) How are you a semen grade listener if you don't know that? First of all, like, yeah, like uh, communicating across differences right now. But also, like, this is a B-side from the year 2023. If you were to pick something where you're like, what is an Olivia Rodrigo song that would be difficult for them to get the idea to put in this episode for them to clear in time for it to be in a television show that is coming Literally out that. now? Like that it would be not inevitable that this needle drop is not going to, you're not going to hear this and someone's going to be like, oh, haha, like you're just doing top 40 radio from like 2023. Because simultaneously, Olivia is like, probably did the biggest pop drop of the year. And also this song was not everywhere. Like that juxtaposition of all of those things. Believable. There is so much we so could satisfying. say. We could do an entire episode just about the inclusion of this song. The fact that everybody knows Olivia Rodrigo grew up as a Percy Jackson fan. She wrote Percy Jackson songs as a kid. She's There's that viral tweet about that where she's like, haha, yes. maybe one day I'll, I'll release my Percy Jackson songs. I am sure that they reached out to her and she was like, yes, let's put one of my songs in Percy Jackson. Let's green light it as fast as possible. And the choice to use Logical, this is Logical. a song that 
if you are a patron, you know, was not Carter or I's favorite track on this album. But since I have listened to it from Sally Jackson's perspective has become one of my favorites because, oh, that feeling and that sensation of I love you and it's not logical. And she's standing in the rain, feeling like Mm -hmm. the force of nature, feeling the storm, thinking about Poseidon. We know from what Becky Riordan has said in several interviews over the last several months that there is a backstory scene between Sally and Poseidon and that we get to see that be expanded upon. So this is setting up that relationship. Oh, my God. God, I am so yeah. excited to watch Sally and Poseidon's story, whatever it is that we get to see there. And I'm obsessed with the idea of Sally as this cool young mom who listens to yes. Olivia Rodrigo and is yes. so relatable. We asked Virginia, the actress, what? tell me about that moment with Olivia Rodrigo playing. And she was like, is that who was playing? Was like, who? I didn't even what? know. <laughs> <laughs> she didn't say so, who. That's my bad. I'm sure Virginia knows who Olivia is. She didn't recognize yes. the song. That's correct. Yes, yes. <laughs> Which makes sense because it's a B-side from the most recent album. All this being said, I'm really looking forward to hopefully in the next few days there being like a little, like some kind of Olivia Rodrigo radio interview where somebody brings this up and she gets to talk about it because I could yeah. also see it being her. She's like, oh my God, my song's in Percy Jackson. I didn't even know or something. Yeah. What an honor that would be to break that to her. Wow. These shots are so good. It's not just that this is happening. It's that we, like, have a slow pan in from the hallway of her being framed in the window vertically. Like, a vertical shot within a shot. Gorgeous. And then we turn around and we have this, like, two seconds of her, like, face on, like, lost in thought in the rain before she turns around to go in and say hi to Percy. Where it's, like, just her. Just dropped into her thoughts and her emotions and her own story. I fear this is a shot we will see for generations to come in Sally Poseidon Truther edits Mm. i can't Mm -hmm, wait to see mm -hmm, this mm -hmm. clip in one million poseidon x sally tiktoks she turns she turns around she comes in immediately says all the right things everything's okay i believe you i'm just glad you're home here's some blue food they have like a little debrief as she's like toweling off her hair which to me is like an iconic what is the reference i'm looking for here like a 90s this is something that like a 90s actress would do it's the notebook it's rachel mcadams it's the notebook notebook. because the rain good towel acting yeah (sighs) wow I fell for you like waterfalls from the February sky. Okay, I'm done. I'm done. I'm done. <laughs> it's a song about rain. It's a song about water. It's just, okay. We have to move on. Otherwise, we're never going to get to the end of this episode. Primary plot-wise, since we're getting out of this, A, Percy is expressing concern about his mental health. He's like, I am unwell. Things are getting worse. I don't feel in control of my life. That's big. That is not the way that this interaction worked out in the books. The second thing is Sally and Gabe's dynamic is different. Where she basically is, I don't want to say bullying him because he's a jerk. Like she is not taking any BS from Gabe in this moment. Oh, she's giving She's that. letting him know what's happening. She like every time that he has a little like, ah, da, 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 she's giving it right back to him. Exactly. She is not taking any degradation from him Mm-mm. and just telling him what's going to happen. She is threatening him by not picking up his lunch order. And that is brilliant. I'm going to eat your sandwich. What if I eat your sandwich in the car and listen to the Knicks game alone on the radio? And he says, make sure you get the peppers. And she says, if you say please. It was, yeah, well, it was giving um, like unhealthy relationship, an unhealthy relationship where um, no one needs to be murdered. Maybe. Yes. I was like, (laughs) oh yes, this is a dynamic that is like tenable, if not ideal. Yeah, 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 yeah. I love that change because the idea that it is 2023 and we can have a woman who is able to make a sacrifice for her child that also does mm-hmm. not put her in danger. Yes. This is a beautiful update from Sally being somebody who is like nothing but suffering in the name of her kids, like cannot yeah. possibly have happiness, to being like, oh, Sally is a woman with a life and with relationships mm-hmm. and friendships and people, and that she is with this man who like kind of sucks, but ultimately like she can handle it. I think that there is probably going to be some level in the way that we reveal and explore more of this relationship that is going to suggest that there is some kind of actual settling involved in this that is not just about Percy but that is also Sally yes. struggling to get over the relationship with exactly. Poseidon and to emotionally move forward the real struggle of being in this relationship with Gabe is not that he is like physically violent to her which again he could still be we don't know that but assuming he isn't it's not that he is physically violent to her it is that she is still in love with Poseidon. With Poseidon and can only be with someone who's like obviously not romantically compatible with her or exciting. Yes. Because otherwise, like, how could she possibly romantically invest in anybody? She fell for him like waterfalls from the February sky. I mean, 
I'm losing my mind. <laughs> we can't become Poseidon Sally okay. shippers. <laughs> I won't allow it. Commercial break. Commercial break. We're going Act to Montauk. Three, climax. Act culmination. Three. We open on a dream sequence. We're not going to spend too much time on this, but it's the same dream sequence. It's the same set of shots, same setup as... As the very opening. The opening. But we get a voice. A gravelly yes. voice in the distance, goading Percy on. If I'm remembering correctly, this is the part in the book where we see the eagle fighting. Eagle and the horse. And the horse. Slashing at each other on the beach. Exactly, yeah. exactly. So I thought that was what he was going to be looking at, but it's definitely not that. Yeah. It's that figure it's in the distance. Figure in the distance holding like a lantern or something. Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, I love um, the lantern. Because the lantern is giving like the witch in Snow White. It's like, could be ominous, could yeah. be helpful. It's not necessarily yeah. a villain. Are they going to lead you down a darkly lit path towards something better? Who knows? Yeah, 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 yeah. Cabin, we get some nice details. They're racing. Percy, like, is playful with his mother. Most of this is the reveal discussion with the two of them sitting by the fire. Wow, what is there to say about this? The crux of the discussion, a lot of it is Percy being like, I, I think I'm unwell. And Sally saying, no, you're not. I'm going to tell you the truth. You're a demigod. But the way that she walks into that also is fascinating because she walks in Poseidon first. Like, when she starts to get concerned, she's like, do you... Do you know why we come here? It's because of your dad. And here's the story of your dad. And therefore, this is what that means for you. That you are a mm -hmm. demigod and that you are part of this other world where people might not see things the same way as you. And these changes are changes that all demigods go through. And I think, like, they don't even say this explicitly in this portion, but I like you can see her ramping up to the thing that she says explicitly in the book, which is that this conversation is going to fundamentally change our relationship to each other, which is maybe why we haven't had it yet. Uh, mm -hmm. But like Percy mm -hmm. doesn't seem to be picking up on that part of the thread. But we, I think, as the as the viewers are noticing mm -hmm. that as like the subtext of what she's saying as well. I was just say that the scene makes me cry because they are both trying so hard to connect with one another and like missing each other, right? Because Percy is trying to say, "I need help." Like he's reaching out to his mom. Oh my god, I'm mm -hmm. gonna cry. He has after we what we talked about earlier with seeing him getting bullied for very specific reasons and his life changing, the color grading changing when Grover comes into his life and then for mm -hmm. Grover to backstab him, he has probably never felt so mm -hmm. alone. He says, I'm used to feeling weird. I'm used to the world feeling weird to me, but then things are getting worse. Oh God. This conversation is so fascinating. There was a moment in the middle where I was like so tonally confused for like two seconds. I found it so destabilizing where Sally is like debriefing about what happened at the museum. And she says, what did she say to you? And Percy responds, she... How do you know she was this she? In any other franchise, that is the beginning of the horror spiral. This yes. is when Sally turns out to be <laughs> a monster. But instead, what we get here is that we have enough faith in the relationship between Percy and Sally that that's not... I don't think that's part of the destabilization. The destabilization is that like Percy and Sally are going to start talking past each other. Not like we are... Sally's going to secretly be a monster. Like the conflict is just emotional. It's just that like Sally clearly yes. knows more than she's let on. Because... Yes. While she is like a very excellent mother, there are some things that are difficult for her to talk about. And she's like, fine. Mm -hmm. She's like working her way up to that. Yes. It's not that she is the monster. It's that this whole situation is so horrifying for Percy. He does feel like he's in a horror movie. Everyone around him is gaslighting him. Yeah, that's true. Virginia's acting in this scene as she is visibly struggling to come yes. up with the words. Sometimes as an actor, I'll watch a scene and I'll like see the words, you know, as they're saying it and on the page and be like, I wonder how this mm -hmm. was broken down and how you chose to break down these sentences. I'll always be like, where was yeah. the punctuation? And how did you choose to yeah. change that punctuation? Which is why, oh my God, I love that Instagram account that like scrolls through the PDF of the script as you see the actual scene playing underneath it. Because mm, it's so yeah, interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I would love to see that for this moment because the way she chooses to break down these thoughts and what is harder for her to say and what comes out a little bit easier is so brilliant and so specific. Yeah, she catches on this line. Like, he wasn't like any man I'd ever met before because he, and, like, she, like, visibly, like like, just like a noise up. she makes out yes. of her throat. Yes. That was another he wasn't scene where it's, like, in all. any other movie, in any other TV show, that would be, like, horror. That would be, this like, This is gastrointestinal problems. Kind of is horror. Yeah, it is gastrointestinal problems. Is that going to be that award category for this episode? Like, oh my god, best girl Worst gastrointestinal problems. <laughs> <laughs> nobody um, wants to lie to walker that child is so adorable and they're all getting gird having to lie to Percy. <laughs> yes and a lot of this dialogue we should note is fresh like this isn't really obviously some version of this happens but like this scene is pretty different from the dialogue that we get in the books walker has some amazing one-liners in this as well you fell in love with god 
Jesus. His delivery is so deadpan, like kind of incredulous, but also trying to follow and not yeah. knowing what's going on. And earlier, he like when Sally's like, do you know where we come to this cabin every year? He he like throws that away. He's like, we come to this cabin because it's by the septic tanks, so it's cheap. <laughs> Because it's I true. We were like, when I was reading these books, I was like, how can they afford the Montauk cabin? Genuinely. Literally. We all thought it was like <laughs> a lease under Poseidon's name or something. Yeah. But it's like an Airbnb that they like to go to because it's cheap. Wow. Everything about the scene is so interesting and like high drama. The strings pulling in and like swelling under specifically the Half Blood revelation. And okay, this to me, this got me so good. Right after, like, Sally finishes explaining everything, Percy stands up. He is upset. He's irritated. And you get yes, these shots. We talked about this in the trailer episode. You get these shots looking up from Sally's perspective to Percy, who, even though, like, we've been, like, Walker's so small, he's, like, towering over her. And being yes. upset, he's saying, I'm not a god. There's something wrong with his brain. But he's, like, growing past her. You can see her being like, I don't know if I have a handle on this anymore. You can see him growing up before her eyes and turning into this entity of somebody that she doesn't have total control over. And by giving him this information, she is letting him go. Yes, letting him go. But also, like, as she's seeing this, she's like, you like you could become of this other world. You will become something that I can't control. But also, like, you could become something terrible. I think that's part of, like, what's maybe going on Literally. here. Is it's like, I've like, done my best. But it is possible that you become a bad man like all Where these you other become, heroes at the very least like your father completely unreachable to me yes it's giving say it with me invincible season two now out oh my god i have goosebumps just thinking about this shot yes of percy towering and we get it from the other way of like walker like walker's perspective almost looking down at her as he's like mad as he and that yes. line, I think, is phenomenal. There's some other things that are going on here. And he, like, ends with the saying, there, I know there's no such thing as demigods. Is that where the dramatic emphasis is? I'm not 100% sold. But this first line of, I'm not a god, there's something wrong with my brain, I thought is so, like, that crystallizes everything that is unique about his experience, unique yes. about Percy Jackson, the character, unique about this adaptation being, like, Percy is offset and confused and... Neurodivergent! He's neurodivergent and he's reaching out to his mom for help. And she is trying to tell him the truth, but he just feels like she's lying to him. And then Grover shows up. Immediately ignoring <laughs> Percy to consult with Sally because he is that friend who has a close personal relationship yes. with your mom. <laughs> he's banging on the door and specifically he's not calling for Percy. He's calling for Sally. He's like, Mrs. Jackson, Mrs. Jackson, please. <laughs> he storms and he blows by Percy to like talk to Sally. And it's like, things are accelerating. Stuff is hard, but... um. But it's fine. I think we shouldn't panic and it'll be fine. And Sally's like, it's fine. It's fine. Grover, calm down. I I'm, I have a handle on things. I need you to settle down. And this whole time, Percy, Percy initially is like mad because he's like, Grover, my betrayer. I don't think so. Not today. I don't, I don't think so. <laughs> and then, of course, we get the reveal that um, this is like a chapter ender in, in The Lightning Thief that um, <laughs> Grover has goat legs. I why, is half a goat why is there half a goat in your Why is there half a goat? That's... <gasps> lovely, <gasps> lovely update. I love the scene so much. Arian wearing the little hat. He's wearing this little beanie. He he's like looking up at Sally so like expectantly, and there's so much like fear and overwhelmed, flustered, nervous energy, but also trying trying to be professional because he's at work. Yes, he's he at work. This, like, little where he's like, oh, like I He's a licensed <laughs> mental health professional. He really is. He's a social worker. He's a conflict resolution <laughs> counselor. Yeah, we're saying all these things. The, the TLDR is is Sally's like, you showed up early. And Grover's like, because because the, the challenge is here. We got to go. We, we don't have any time left. We're in the car. We're driving off to camp. And Grover's trying to like quickly fill in on all the rest of the details that Sally didn't get to because she was like, I'm taking my time. We have until tomorrow morning. Let me luxuriate in your family story instead of explaining the logistics of what a Seder is or like, what camp is. So Grover's explaining all the details on the car. He's like, I'm a satyr. I'm your protector. We're going to camp, etc." Percy, <laughs> this is so funny. Percy's like, you're my protector. I'm actually, I'm actually 24. 24. <laughs> as, as we're going, the Minotaur shows up. This is different from the books. The Minotaur shows up in a flash of lightning from the stormy skies. Yes. On all fours. Fascinating. Drama. Fascinating Drama. because it makes you think, is it the titular lightning? lightning? Hmm. <laughs> and it looks sickening. And it has underwear, which is such a sweet, like, this could have easily been cut. But they kept it in the Myth of Magic card sequence at the beginning, and they keep it mm -hmm, here. Mm -hmm. Because yes. we have to do something silly and quirky. 
it's still just to break up the drama. It still is appropriate. And as a book callback, it's strong. It's effective. We were missing it. I don't know if our skill sets are as suited to having similarly detailed conversations about fight sequences. Wow, speak for yourself, Carter. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Erica knows some things about fight choreography. Carter has seen the most recent John Wick film, so you can speak for yourself. <laughs> you cannot expose me as not being a Rita Sawayama completist on the <laughs> internet like this in front of everybody. I just did. They're going to vote. They're going to vote my, my card. The drama of this scene is the fact that Sally has some like car fighting against a Minotaur. She's like whacking the car against it. She's yep, doing some she's very creative smart. action sequence driving where she like slams on the brakes and like skids around to like throw it away. There's a slight feeling of safety that you have because mom is still driving and mom's still in the car and we still have mom. Yes. And she clearly knows what's going on. Yes. It's giving. She's prepared for this moment. She brings the flashlight out. Yeah. We still have mom here. We crash the car. We all get out. We help each other out. Mom has the flashlight. We're starting to walk towards the hill. We see Talia's tree. But then we have the explanation that Sally can't come with us. Mind you, all this is happening in the pouring rain. In specifically, we are lit by the headlights of the crashed yes! car. To because me, otherwise it would be pitch black. It is diagetic Cinema. lighting. But the drama of this lighting, the way that we can only basically set up shots with two of them at a time yes. to have like all of our one-off pairings. Lit. Sally making Grover promise to take care of Percy. Sally telling Percy that he needs to hold fast. Brave this. I have goosebumps and we're just talking about it and I have full goosebumps down my arms. Dare we overanalyze this real quick and talk again about the golden lighting. The golden lighting coming out of the headlights in the pitch dark yes. black blue. It's like this last piece of home. The car is broken down. This last bit of yes. Sally. You know? Yes. Before the 100%. lights turn out and she disappears and we're just in the darkness without her. Yes. And this is the same lighting that we get for the scene with Sally and the Minotaur. When she uses Percy's cape, lures it away. Which is an adjustment from the book because Percy uses his red jacket to do the little bullfighting. But here, in the book, that's Sally true. does it. Yeah, which is really cool. Give her something to do. Sally does it. Far away, the camera, ugh, the camera remaining close to Percy's perspective so that all of this is small and distant. Yes. When we see the golden disappearance and all of this still being lit by the headlights of the car. Oh my God, I have is She's so far away. Sick. We can't possibly do anything in this moment as viewers to save her. Yeah. Oh God. And the way that the Minotaur is still doing the like the up down, like vertical horizontal, like you get the full like half man, half beast. Yes, because he's running on all fours, but he's walking and like fighting, standing up. And grabbing. Yeah. Yes. Oh. And as Percy is watching this, she's going to buy him some time, right? But then after she bursts into golden dust, he freaks out and he charges, right? And if I was Aryan, if I was Grover in this moment, I would be like, come on, man. She just gave her life for you. Like, we need to get going. Like, don't go and fight the yeah. thing. Um, but of course, he can't handle it because that's his mom. And we just spent this whole episode learning about how she's the only person he has in his life and how close they are and seeing her say, hold fast and crying. If you are a human being, you will have cried during that moment yeah. of dialogue. And then he runs towards her. And this fight sequence, this culmination, goosebumps, the music cuts out. It is in silence. This is a brilliant choice. It is total drama. You're like, what is going to happen? You just hear the sounds of them fighting and you see the golden glow of Riptide in addition to the car lights now kind of lighting the scene. And as they're fighting, the shots are quick. It's amazing. Walker excels at the fight choreo and at the stunt work. He is so good at that. It looks yeah. amazing. Combination of VFX, of editing, lighting, all of that. And then when he finally stabs down into the Minotaur. He's like up on um, its neck, you know, with his legs swinging around mm -hmm. the Minotaur's shoulder. You get this brilliant animation of like, as the Minotaur crumbles from top to bottom into dust, Walker like yeah, rides the wave of the like crumbling body all the way down to the ground, almost like a slide. Yes. <laughs> this was a gorgeous detail that you couldn't possibly get in the book that like seeing this be set up, like logistically you're like, oh yeah, if you dust the monster, do you like fall to the earth? No, it happens in this like weird way. And still there's no music playing as you see him like sliding down the body. It is very eerie and it's scary. Something that I was wondering about a lot when we were going into this is how we are going to make compelling scenes given that Riptide can cut anything, right? Mm -hmm. Like all it takes is one strike from Riptide and this Minotaur is dead. 
But the drama of this scene is so compelling. Like, it is immediately obvious why this, you know, very useful magical weapon is going to be almost useless. Yes. And the Minotaur picking up, like, rocks and dirt. The rock? The boulder. (sighs) It's terrifying. He does also slice off the Minotaur horn, which is a very important detail. Important detail so that we can keep it. The size of the Minotaur horn was something that I did not fully think about. That it's gigantic? His entire body and the horn in particular, those horns are like as big as Walker, basically. And that sense of scale felt fresh, felt new, felt awe-inspiring to me Mm -hmm. as we were wrapping up this episode. Fading to black, having these like dim, backlit by the sunrise image of some people at the edge of camp telling Percy that they've been expecting him. Annabeth, you hear her say he could be the one. Annabeth. Oh. Wow. Kyron, oh my gosh. Yeah. And then title sequence. Credits. Wow. Have we talked about we haven't talked about the credits yet? Yeah, we have to talk about the credits. They are it's Art Deco. It's beautiful. It's Art Deco. It is the lobby of the Empire State Building. If you've never been there, I encourage you to look it up. It is stunningly beautiful. It's been used in some of the promotional content already, like when they were teasing the official trailer drop. They used an actual image of the backdrop of the um, lobby of the Empire State Building. Um, and it's so stunning. And then, Carter, you mentioned this. When we were at the premiere event, they were giving out some art um, as, like, a favor. Mm-hmm. We should mention the credit sequence art is Art Deco depicting, specifically, the quest of the Lightning Thief. Yes! Foreshadowing! Like, there's a chimera, oh and there's, you like, see all the gods, you see Ares, Medusa. you see Capture the Flag, you see the boss across the country. It's brilliant. but And it like it looks very Art Deco in the sequence. But then when we were looking at it kind of like printed out 2D, it looks very mm-hmm. sci-fi, very fantasy. Mm-hmm. Like the colors are brighter. The tones are darker. So I think it works in both ways, thematically and form-wise yes. appropriate. So to close off today, we are going to be doing a couple things for the end of each of these analysis episodes. The first thing that we're going to do is talk about this episode in we're coining this John Steinberg's four angle, three dimensional tetrahedron of making Percy Jackson, where John Steinberg, the executive producer and showrunner for this show, said in our roundtable with him that you are really making four shows at once. On one hand, you're making a show for fans, lifelong fans of the book, and you're also making a show for people who've never read it before. And then you take that duality and you flip it on its head and there's two other angles you're making the show from which is a show for kids and a show that adults want to watch listen to our last episode if you want to hear him explain it in his own words so we're going to talk about all of those angles and how we felt they felt that they succeeded in this particular episode so carter how do you feel that this episode succeeded in our uh four angle three-dimensional tetrahedron i think it was successful um, i feel like the depictions of childhood felt very original and organic and lived in. I felt like there were a lot of very direct, satisfying references to the original text and clearly a strong thematic resonance with the original text to appeal to people who are longtime fans. A lot of the simplifying choices made a lot of sense. And I think all the lore has been either re-explained or simplified in ways that I think make things very accessible without any loss of pacing, which is one of the things that we were talking about as we were watching it, was that the pacing of the episode is good. It is brisk. It is fast. We are like never in a scene that is overstaying its welcome. What was the last one? I mean, we're old. We're adults. We enjoyed this. Yeah, absolutely. Obviously, it's hard for us to speak, (laughs) impossible for us to speak from the perspective of coming at this with no knowledge of the source material. But I would think that it is very well set up. And certainly, I mean, once you get to that Minotaur fight at the end, how could you not want to see what happens next. How would you mm-hmm. not want to see what it was all worth for Sally to die? I agree. I agree. A plus, 100%. <laughs> all right. And the second thing that we are going to do at the end of each episode, um, because we didn't mention, but we had no special guest today for the sake of getting an episode out on Wednesday of release. But for every episode after this, we will be releasing with at least one to like several special guests, starting with episode two this coming Friday. And we're, what we're going to do at the end of each episode is an award ceremony where we are going to create nomination categories for individual moments in this show. And we are also going to create a category and come up with nominations that you all, if you're listening on Spotify, can vote on who you think should win in that category in our poll section. We are calling them the the Nori, the the Noris, the um, Nori the Awards. awards. Um, think uh, Emmy or Tony or Grammy. But for Seaweed Brain, 
listeners who might not be aware, um, <laughs> nori is a, is a Japanese special prepared seaweed that is used in such dishes as uh, onigiri or um, sushi. So not only is this um, thematically appropriate for seaweed brain, but also we are choosing moments that are like light, salty, special snacks. Light, salty, special snacks. Incredible little specially contained, wrapped in plastic moments. Preserved moments of goodness. Preserved forever moments. <laughs> All right. Carter, that being said, what is your special nomination and award that you are giving today for the Nodi Awards? I think that the Nodi Award I will give is for, it has to be for the Hashing Fire inaugural award for a moment that will change cinema forever. <laughs> for the color grading the color when Grover shows up. Change when Grover shows up. Specifically, the full sequence where the Myth and Magic card plops down in front of Percy. We like cut back in. Notebook is full of drawings of the monsters that he's seen that nobody else seen. We see the Myth Magic card plop down, pan up to Grover. The world is colorful, and Arian has such a full, luminous smile that we're seeing over Walker's shoulder in the shot. Perfect. Amazing. Establishes such a strong relationship so concisely. And it makes me emotional every time I see it. Wow. You're going to make me emotional because <laughs> we were that age when we met. Like, we were that age when all of our... I mean, Carter had already gone to... I came to the school that Carter was already at and already had friends. But when I was that age and I came to that school and made this new group of friends that, like, finally, like, understood and were there for me. Oh, wow. What a formative age. <laughs> because we were a little bit younger. We were 10, not 12. But my nomination is going to be... My category of nomination for Episode 1 Naughty Awards is going to be most most efficient way of turning me into a Poseidon Sally shipper through the use of an unbelievable Olivia Rodrigo song in the history of cinema. <laughs> That's what we're giving awards to today. Um, but for y'all to vote, I think maybe the category is... Is it not going to be most gastrointestinally distressed? The category is <laughs> who had the most gastrointestinal distress in episode one. The nominations are... Grover Underwood for lying to his best friend. Um, Sally Jackson for having to tell her son about his father, who she's still in love with. Gabe for having to sell his Gabe's that he had to call the, the building manager. <laughs> and Percy Jackson for being gaslit by everybody around him. <laughs> Vote in the poll section. Vote and let us know. We'll review the results at our next episode and give the award. Thank you all so much for being with here. If you are a new Seaweed Brain listener, welcome. Thank you for being here. If you are a longtime Seaweed Brain listener, can you believe that we're finally here? Isn't it so exciting? <laughs> um, thank you for being on this journey with us. And we will see you all next time. Bye, y'all. <laughs>